All right, welcome to episode eight of the Totem Realty Advisors podcast, brought to you today by Knob Creek 12, which, uh, spoiler alert, not a fan. Fan. Yeah, not a fan. Are you a fan? Well, I'm giving it the benefit of the doubt, and uh, after the first drink, we'll uh, we'll make a decision. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. by the end, it's going to still be the same for me. Not a fan. Yeah. But um, current events, some crazy conversation going on on valuations in this wonderful world of real estate between our former president, Mr. Trump, and his, uh, I guess they were his advisor at the time, Cushman and Wakefield. So appraisals are in interesting, uh, an interesting piece of the puzzle. Well... Who's going to go first? Look at you two. Well, You're both I'm, like I'm, not no, sure I'm, where I'm to go. I'm going to go first, and it has absolutely <laughs> nothing to, to do I'm with gonna our... Try to, I'm going to try to play the strong, silent role on this with week's our, With our beloved <laughs> president, number 45. Um, appraisals are really a tool, good. and they're used by every party. Uh, I would like to say it is just a, an absolute impartial valuation of a property, but that's not accurate. Uh you have an appraisal done to make an argument, to place a value on something. If you are trying to contest your taxes, you want your property to come in at less value. If you're trying to leverage your property, you want it to be more valuable. If you're trying to work... So hold on, i got to pause you right there. So it's, it is art, not science? It is absolutely art, and some of it is pretty ugly art. As a matter of fact, and the art is done on both sides of the table. When a bank will value and order their own appraisal to value your property after the loan is in place, they want the lowest possible value. You want a higher possible value. When uh, a property is being taken by um, some form of a Department of Transportation taking or, or eminent domain, eminent domain taking or something of that nature. The government who's taking your property wants the value to be significantly lower. In fact, there's rules as to what the, uh, it's not the appraiser that would take it, it's whatever their contracting officer would be, that he's he is allowed, personally allowed, to go 15% above an appraised value to get something done, at least depending on the jurisdiction that you're talking about. So there's all sorts of uh, liberal ethics when it comes to approaching valuation of property. So it's not just Donald Trump. It's probably every real estate developer on the planet, every real estate owner on the planet, every homeowner that says, oh, my property is worth X, um, every municipality that wants to increase your the value of your property. Everyone makes an argument regarding the valuation of a property. It's just the nature of of how they have to keep score of it. Is there something that's 100% accurate? No. Appraisals are even done with different methods of finding the appraisal. What are the methods? Okay, there's the cost approach. What does it cost me to reproduce this particular property? Okay, that's one. There's the sales comparable approach. What did other properties that were like this sell for? Well, that's completely subjective because what are you using as sale comparables? Okay. What are you using for cost if you're talking about the other one? Are you using cost in the southwest? Are you using cost in the northeast? Um, you know, your labor costs are a 1,000% different. 
Um, are you doing costs for a building in a right-to-work state, or are you doing costs in a, in a merit state uh, or a union state? Um, and then another method is the probably the truest commercial valuation is uh, the income approach. What does this actual property produce? But that, all that you're doing is you're judging a cash flow, a cash flow that should have an objective value to it, um, and that is probably the most objective value that you're going to get out of a property. Uh, what does it produce? How long is it going to be producing it? And then the real estate is almost, uh, you know, it's not considered as important, though it is valued someplace in there. So, so go ahead. I wanted to flip it back to you anyway. So where were back, you going to go? Back to you, Paige. Yeah. <laughs> so thinking about an income approach, um, would you say that a, a firm or an appraiser tasked with evaluating an asset, an income-producing commercial asset, um, with the income approach, are you, as the person, the professional performing that valuation, um, only as good at evaluating it as the information that you're provided? Hundred uh, percent. Yes, but they are, as a professional, they are tasked to find the information themselves. Let's. let's but how could you? I mean, I mean, we we've been through this. I mean, with some of our clients that we've provided valuations for. You know, you rely on them to provide you with the the income statements and the P&Ls, and our valuations are only as good as the information that you pro they provide us. So uh, I guess that is my my question here is, you know, I, I read the article yesterday, Cushman Wakefield is, is now being audited on all of their valuations, but like where does the responsibility lie? And at what point when someone pre presents you with these reports, do you say, oh, those don't seem right. Like, how would you know as the person performing the valuation? Okay, let's just take, by way of example, a Cushman and Wakefield valuation, and let's just use a property that is owned by the former president. Okay, Trump Tower. Everyone knows what Trump Tower is. Great Which city? Right? Which Trump Tower? Okay, the, Trump, the original Trump Tower in New York. Okay. Okay. Okay, Trump Tower has three different components to it. There's a retail component, there's a residential component, and there's an office component. Okay, all three of them will carry different kinds of valuation. Okay, but retail, I believe Trump Tower is on the Fifth Avenue, correct? I believe it's on Fifth Avenue. Okay. Okay, Trump Tower is on Fifth Avenue. Retail on Fifth Avenue has a very long history of comparable values. You can find out what FAO Schwartz leases for, what Tiffany will lease for, what Bergdorf, what Fortunoff. Go right up and down the street. You will find what the retail value should be for that particular property. There you're are, saying lease comps. Lease comps. Yeah, like what the lease comps. And okay. if you're going to do an sure income, if you're going to do an income approach on that, okay, you're, that's a very legitimate. But do those way. comps even matter? Because what really matters is, is what income. is coming in today, right? The income today. Absolutely, and you're going to value it as is that a viable lease comp? Is is meaning is it like is Tiffany, representative of the is market? representative of what the market says? And isn't if you're going to value it, 
You're going to as but isn't that but like what's why are we talking the about fatal comps? flaw why are we with talking about lease appraisals? Comps? Because it's it's actual revenue incoming. It's not a. It, it should be based on the actual revenue streams incoming, right? What the actual leases at that point in time are showing is revenue minus the expenses, and that, right? I mean, yeah, why, I mean, is it, why does it rely on okay. lease comps? But when you value that, say this is the value that's coming in, okay? Let's just say that the value of that particular lease is $100 per square foot net in a market, okay, that has a $90 per square foot net average revenue. Well, the question will be, why is that? Okay, so every appraiser has to make that subjective judgment. There's a line in how they value it. How did I, why did I make this subjective ju judgment? Is it because of its location right there? Is it because of the tenant mix? Is it because of this? Certain properties are going to value certain, there's going to be a little bit of a fluctuation there. So you're saying and, it's a balance between actual current income versus what the market income could be for a comparable asset with comparable leases in place. This is the art form that Kevin speaks of. That, but that was just a pu like purely yes. a question to make Absolutely. sure I'm understanding your train of thought. Yes, that's, that's how it is. Certain properties will have a little bit more, let's just say, panache. Um, uh, the Plaza Hotel, <laughs> well, right. So the so Plaza Hotel is going to carry more of a uh, room revenue than uh, the Sheridan. But that's not panache. That's actual hard dollars coming in versus costs going out. Well, why does someone pay the hard dollar versus the cost going out? There's something that they're providing that has a little bit more snap to it. But we're not Does talking about what the consumer's paying. We're talking about the valuation of the, the yeah, asset, okay, the real estate. You're, but you're asking why is, okay, I have, to, I have to take a step back here. Okay, you're asking why is this something that will have a discrepancy in the valuation? It is not a fixed hard number, okay? An appra one appraiser is going to say it's worth this. Another appraiser is going to say it's worth that. But if you're using the income approach, why isn't it? Because he's going to say that this is worth more because of this is where it is. It's on this side of Fifth Avenue versus this side of Fifth but Avenue. But that's why you compare the income approach valuation method with the sales comparable or the a, a, a market comp. But the income and, approach and mesh the two of those valuations together. The income approach will have a subjective value attached to it. Also, but why? That's the question I'm asking. I think well, that goes back to. What I think is, it's what a great question, and it's really like at the end of the day. And I haven't studied the Cushman Trump thing, like. But you've studied appraisals. Yeah, and I have got a strong opinion that I'm trying to be objective about. Um, at the end of the day, why is it so subjective? Like, it should be more scientific. And I think Paige, you're making a good point. Like. You're learning this business and you're trying to figure out, like, why is there such discrepancy? And there really shouldn't be the discrepancy as it relates to an income approach. Like, it kind of should be. It is what it is. But there is, as you well pointed out, Michael, a lot of discrepancy. There's a lot of art, depending on who's ordered the appraisal, who's paying for the appraisal. Like, it is, everybody thinks, well, whatever the appraisal says is what it is and it's absolutely, just it's nonsense it's it is. nonsense it's it's i'm paying for an opinion and, and we have an industry built 
on an opinion of value via an appraisal who then can get a bank loan. And listen, I'm not, you know, picking sides in Cushman versus Trump or Trump versus whatever. But I do feel bad for Cushman that they probably did to the best of their ability, put a value on something, and now they're going to get crucified for it. And that's the thing. I mean, we experience it too. Like, we create these valuations. Obviously, we research comps. We research lease comps. We research sales comps. Um, we consider the cost of reproduction of an asset. But then the income approach, which on revenue-producing assets is, I would say it carries the weight of how we attribute value to an asset. And we rely on income statements and P&Ls from our clients to derive those numbers. So it, that's it, what I'm, as Kevin's saying, sympathetic to the Cushman-Wakefield situation. How could a firm prevent themselves from being in the same scenario. Well, it's, uh, God, it's, it's such a big problem here because there's so many moving parts to it. Okay, you just said the income approach is the ab absolute best way of valuing it. Well, what if there's no income? What if it's an empty building? Then you have to look at it from a different perspective. And I would go back to think about it as your home. When it, it, if you have your home, you're not going to use the income approach on your home. I mean, some people do. Like, if you think of it, some people sure. value it. And they'll use the income approach, but they'll do a pro forma NOI to come up with a value that's not even... They're attributing value to vacant space. So I it's... agree. They will do that. And is that the most accurate? This is because you have three or four different, three different ways of looking at the same problem. And you're going to have interpretation. And people have different interpretations. That it, it it's just has this subjectivity that is just built in. It's inherent to the problem. And yet someone is going to decide, this is the amount of money that I'm going to leverage. Now, why? But if you're John Doe, hold on. If you're John Doe and you want to get a loan, or and let's even like step away from John Doe. If you're, you yeah, know. Leave him alone. Yeah, leave him alone. <laughs> if you're he Paige. <laughs> M, and you're a banker, <laughs> and you want to make a loan, you're, the institution, like the bureaucracy of the banking world has said, it needs to appraise, or I can't give you this loan, right? So if you're in those shoes, you want the appraisal to work. And then you influence the appraisal to make sure that you can loan on that asset. But, and I have a question. Uh, okay. I'm not disagreeing, well. but I have a question. But does is that only a scenario, like if, if you're trying to take out debt on it, whereas if you're trying to argue um, an assessment to lower your tax basis, mm -hmm. that is something where... Well, then the roles are reversed. It's strictly the owner it's strictly that is the concerned owner. Well, about who's, it. Who's the banker doesn't care. It's all about who's paying for it. Right, and okay. that's what I'm wondering. Like, is it, I was having this conversation, again, at the nail salon last night, just sharing the tea. Um, I guess sharing we, the what? What is that? Spilling the tea, uh, sharing, sharing the, the tea. tea. Uh, yeah, I gotta get my nails done. That's what the done. kids are saying these days. I don't even know what that there means. There was but. a woman there talking about how she just bought a house, or she bought a house a year and a half ago. They just got the reassessment, and it raised her mortgage payment by $300 a month. 
and oh, the taxes went up. Correct. Dollars a month. Correct. Yes. So, and the same thing happened to me when I bought my house. Which and, is like four grand a year. But the second I hired an attorney, the attorney had gone to law school with the person who solicitor, the, probably someone from the school board who you know right. appealed what I was paying in taxes, and just called him up and was like, "Hey, bro, why are we doing this?" And he's like, "Yeah, you're right. Let's not." <laughs> and it's like the second you hire an attorney, it it fixes. So like the larger point that I'm getting at here is, is it just the people with the most resources can make happen what they want to happen in these scenarios? Because had I not hired an attorney, I would still be paying the absurd... They doubled my property value when I bought it. So... You know, if you don't lawyer up, if you don't have the resources to spend money on these different things, these professionals that can help you navigate this, um, or like, does the person who carries the biggest stick get their I, way here? I, I, <laughs> I think that that's, you know, usually when you, you, you hire an attorney for a certain reason too, okay, because he's going to make an argument on your behalf. All right, you can make the same argument. The question is, is your argument going to be as effective as the attorney's is? Or, and I would, I would say that the attorney's is going to be better because he's made the argument more. He knows what points to make regarding that. Anybody can contest their taxes. Okay, anyone can contest the value of something. If you go to take out a mortgage, you can not agree with the bank's appraisal. Okay, now at, at the end of the day, is that something that makes sense? Does it make sense just to go get a, a different bank and uh, you know, use a different appraiser? You can get a contesting appraiser, but it's a, up to the bank's loan committee to decide whether they're going to give you the loan or not and what appraisal that they're going to believe. It is just the point is that it's just completely subjective. Well, and it, I guess, like, how does it become not subjective? I mean, because that's the whole it's argument. Intent, problem. That's the whole argument about this whole Cushman-Wakefield thing is that there is no, there's no transparency in the valuation process. And so now they're talking about, I mean, maybe they're not even talking about it yet. They're still investigating it. But the problem with the Cushman-Wakefield thing is that it's out there and Cushman-Wakefield's name is attached to something that Donald Trump did or they said Donald Trump did and now they're being persecuted for I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that oh, there's I, don't know about that. I mean I think there's a lack of understanding about how how different things are I mean the, the whole process. I think I there's mean, a lack of understanding like, about the process. Our clients have no not all of them but there's many of them who don't understand that appraisals are art and not science. And we spend a lot of time educating on that. Like, they're like, oh, but the appraisal said this. Well, unfortunately, like, that was at a moment in time by one person's opinion. And the, the point is that it's an opinion of value. That's what an appraisal is. It's an opinion of value by someone who has gone through whatever courses they've gone through when it's signed off by a master appraiser. Okay? But that is his opinion. How do you say Cushman Wakefield did something wrong when it was his opinion. When it's or an opinion, opinion, somebody else might have a different opinion. Right. What is happening in the in the Cushman and Wakefield thing is they're trying to besmirch the forty fifth president. 
And they're just caught up in the vortex of what it is. My point is that everybody does it on both sides. If you are the taxing authority, I'm increasing your assessment. Well, why? Oh, well, you added that pool over there, or you, you, you extended your driveway over here, or you finished off that room there, or the cost of reproducing this is going to be higher. Taxes will typically go up constantly. Does that mean the value of your home is going up constantly? No. But taxes will go up constantly, and they will tax you every year. In where I live, if the taxes do not increase, if your assessment does not increase by 10%, they do not have to tell you. Well, you know damn well your taxes, your assessment is going up 9% every single year. That's just the nature of the beast because the taxes are what they use to fund government programs. So that's going up. So it's, it's everyone has to have their opinion and make their argument of one side or the other. What the appraisal is, it's an instrument, it's a tool to say, no, you're wrong, this says this, and it's your argument against this, your expert against theirs. So, and then someone's going to believe one way or the other. So an appraiser by its very nature, or appraisal by its very nature, is not going to match one person's opinion is going to be different from another. In fact, I would say it's a rarity that those things will come through. Which brings me to another rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, do you remember in negotiating leases where we're going to use the, quote-unquote, three appraiser method? It's, you do recall that, yeah. right? Can this you, is, for the, the lay person or paid buyers, can there, you? <laughs> there used to be what's called the three appraiser method, and it was this just long, voluminous clause that was put into leases that said, if we can't agree to what the renewal rate is going to be, and the renewal rate was quote-unquote at market, if we can't agree to what the renewal rate is, we will take, you will get your appraiser, and I will get my appraiser, and then if those two can't come to an agreement, we'll get a third appraiser, and then we'll settle someplace within the middle of what all and those appraisals are. if that doesn't are. work, we'll all arm wrestle. Yeah. May the best man win. It's literally spaghetti against a wall. And, you know, I'm going to get my guys and you're going to get your guys. And all of a sudden there's going to be a third party guy. And the third party guy has an allegiance to the two appraisers. <laughs> He's going to pick the number in the middle. So it was just this ludicrous attempt to try to figure out what is market. But what it really did was it illustrated the farce that's appraisal. I'm probably going to get in trouble for saying farce, aren't I? Because <laughs> I do I, feel like... I don't want to... I don't want to... I don't want to dis an entire industry because the appraisal <laughs> industry is a huge thing. We've officially well, accomplished that. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Can we cut that? <laughs> Gary and all of your other friends out there who are appraisal, sorry. But yeah. No, it's but tough. I mean, it just, what, they don't hear it when right. we start drinking anyways? Right. Well, I mean, so I feel like we need to shift gears 100% and go from. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, I'll leave you to reel that back in. To art or from art. To science, so we. I think we collectively agree. I'll let you. I'm good. Choose not um, to drink that. I told you it is not my cup of tea. Get one that you like. That's all right. Um, so we've agreed that there is art there, and it's confusing and it's complicated. Um, but then there's this other thing called science, which then draws <laughs> into an issue: usable versus rentable. And we're dealing with that with mm -hmm. a client right now. 
That so was what a the leap. Heck does that that mean? was a leap on bringing that back. But yeah. the topic outside of current events that we wanted to talk job. about yeah. today is, um, it, yeah, is usable versus rentable square footage. What the um, heck does that mean? Yes. Yeah, so again, being the newbie here, and and prior to. Um, I mean, even for six months in this industry, I didn't understand. We had a great little Kevin Riley whiteboard session that helped <laughs> illustrate the uh, difference. But basically, um, we see it all the time. And if you don't live in this industry or work in this industry on a daily basis, it's not surprising. Um, people get very caught up in how many square feet is the space and what's the rent per square foot. But... What most people don't know is that when someone says, hey, I have a 5,500 square foot space available for rent, that 5,500 square foot encompasses 10 to 20% of unusable square footage, whether it be, um, you know, corridors, common areas, a, a lobby, a gym. Um, Elevator shafts, stairwells, yeah. penetrations, ventilation shafts. Take the mic, Michael. <laughs> no. Right. Um, no, it's, but it's, it encompasses but all the non-occupiable so, space. Right. So if you think that, you know, calculation's sake, you need 3,500 square feet to accommodate your team, the fact of the matter is you're going to be paying for 10 to 15% more? I mean, yeah, what, what I mean, do you I think, think the common good, core factors are? I think the common for like suburban uh, America, suburban office space, 10 to 15% is a good, yeah. a good rule of thumb. Yeah, I mean, the, the rule of thumb when, you know, I started in the industry Decades years ago, ago. When, uh, when General Washington was leading our country. <laughs> uh, Jesus. No, it was uh, if you were a full floor tenant, you were eight to ten percent of the core factor because you didn't have the corridors; you just had to pay for the the stairwells and and everything else. And if you were a common tenant that had multiple tenants on a floor, um, you know you had the common corridor scenario, and um, fifteen to eighteen percent was an acceptable number. Now there are certain buildings that were built with certain uh, type of design features that drive the core up. Big, huge atriums, that kind of thing. I think what's the big driver to change that number right now are the amenities, amenities. that are in, in buildings. But let's not go to the amenity component of it yet. You know, you do have to pay for the things that you use, but you use in common with somebody else. Right. The, the example I always use is the restrooms. Like, do you want your restroom in your space or do you want it to be shared with other people? Yeah. Um, and I think not enough companies think critically about that because I think there's some definite pros and cons to having restrooms in your space or in common. But you have to pay for that space. So when you, uh, you know, this always cracks me up, like when someone says I released 2,000 square feet or 20,000 square feet, if they went and actually measured it, no, they really didn't get 2,000 or 20,000 square feet. They got Whatever the square footage is plus, oh, by the way, the restrooms, the corridors, the elevators, and all of that. In stuff. most cases, but that's not across the board. Every building, the way it's laid out, the way it's set up, if you're in a single-floor business park and you have direct entry right into your suite, maybe there isn't a common factor or core factor. Um, so every building 
That's why we stress to our clients, it's, it's never apples to apples until you understand those, those details. Every building's core factor is going to be different. Um, so just saying, oh, this is a 5,000 square foot space in this building for $20 a square foot, and here's a 7,000 square foot space for 18 or, or even $25 right. a square foot, until you know the common factor, you can't really gauge anything on an apples-to-apples apples basis. And here's the problem, okay? <laughs> because the typical method of measurement is the BOMA method, correct? Yep. The Building and Office Management Association method of measurement. And every building is typically measured by a modified BOMA which means by its very nature. <laughs> Here's my wild-ass guess. But Here's what I I was have trying to measured. go from art to science, and you're saying it's all art. But no, but it's, it's the majority of it is yes. hard. And I, I think I've measured that, uh, I mentioned this in another uh, podcast, was that the first thing I would do if I purchased a building is I would remeasure it because it's a different interpretation of what it is, and you will increase your square footage. And it, it's... there. Everything has a subjective component to it, and people will argue on one side and argue on another, and that's what the negotiation aspect of it is. So if you're a tenant, do you measure your space? I was just going to ask that. What do you think the percentage is of people who actually remeasure their spaces? Like if you had to guess. If I had to guess, 1%. Yeah. Michael, if you had to guess. I, I, I would I would disagree with that simply because the largest tenant. <laughs> oh, it was a shock of my life. The largest tenant in the United States of America is the General Services Administration, and they don't do use they don't use either of it. They use an occupiable and a usable square footage measurement that only they can can do it, and they measure their space constantly. But I would agree, most people do not measure their space. Most people do not measure their space. And really, should they? I mean, at the end of the the day does it really matter it's one of those things I mean, yeah. where does it you, i think for some tenants yeah i mean if you're it, it, it's a possibility i don't think it's it, it, it wouldn't be the hill that i die on but hold on why do you think that it is something that really matters um well i'm not going to try to do mental math right now after a beer and a bourbon but if you're talking i mean depending on the scale of the space that you're talking about uh-huh or depending on the budget of the client. I mean, we work with some clients that the difference of 100 square feet, if it's, you know, $20 a square foot on a month, I mean, that is, once you count all the pass-throughs and everything else, that becomes a substantial add-up over the course of a lease. So, I mean, I... Maybe I'm just a frugal asshole, but <laughs> I think no, it's but, important. And I think that's a good point, but the point being the that point the tenant is, is... everybody should measure yeah, their space. The tenant is so small that there's a pretty good chance that it's not going to... You're not going to have the leverage to... No, but if it's change. off by 10%, 10% is 10%, 10% is a big... Right. No, it's an argument Think you Think about 10% of your bottom line. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's not insignificant. It's not 10%, and nobody does it. Will it. Be, it will be nobody a does it. Point. Nobody does it. And yeah. every lease we read is like subject to tenant measurement. Yeah. And then yeah. nobody measures it. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Now, I think the real 
question that we face in the future is, uh, is there is an amenity war going on in buildings now. And there, a building has a certain size. And now if you're taking space that's outside of Usable once, space, it's rentable. What we was once a rentable bit. space, now it's going to be a conference center or a um, tenant lounge or a gym or a bike nap storage room. or a nap room or a mother's whatever, room. Uh, or what, whatever else uh, they're going whatever to they call, call these that. Rooms, I don't even know. Now, if it becomes a common space, it changes the entire dynamic of that rentable, usable number. And that space still has to be heated, cleaned, paid taxes on, occupied for the most part, all the common costs that you would have had. But it changes the whole equation. And so that's one of those things that you have to be extremely, extremely cautious of. And think of it. So hold on. So I'm going to wrap this up because I'm. Well, wait, but I have a good point. Oh. Maybe. A good I mean, point or you want to make a beauty's point? Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. But um, you see a lot of leases that will state in the lease that the landlord has the right to change the, change the percentage allocation, like the pro rata share of the tenant. Yes. So the tenant could be in the building for five years at 10,000 square feet. But if you don't catch that in the lease... The landlord can say, okay, yeah, you're still in the same amount of square footage, but your pro rata share has gone from 15% to 25% because we took all of this other rentable out area out of play. Now you got to share that. So if that, that's something, too, that I think people would typically overlook that can have huge impacts as we're talking about transitioning previously rentable space into amenity space to keep up with the amenity demands of the post-pandemic current consumer that's looking to use their office 100% space 100% right in the fairway. Tool. In addition to that, they possibly have the ability to pass through the cost of converting the space. Yeah, yeah which is a whole other topic. Yeah. Sorry, a so whole you're topic. both getting put on the spot. How many tenants in Pittsburgh right now are paying for the appropriate amount of square foot or square footage, meaning like their lease says 10,000 square feet. What percentage of the people are actually in 10,000 feet, do you think? I mean, I, th I feel like you just recycled my question. I feel like it's 1%. <laughs> it's the people who measured their space. Maybe it's less than 1% because it's the people who measured their space but then had the wherewithal to be like, hey, you can't recalculate my pro rata share. What do you think? 40 years in the business. Uh, none. None. Now, I, I, Fascinating. The, My the, mentor literally the said the one non-negotiable thing is whatever I tell you the square footage of your space is, it is what it is. Yeah. Think about that. Because he knows that it's none. The guy that's closest, closest, but I, I would almost guarantee that none of them are accurate. The guy's the closest is the one that has the entire building. Um, but I would say none. Yeah, it's crazy. None of them know what the actual square footage is. Fascinating. Or, or you know, everything we do amount. is based yeah. on a per square foot basis. Yeah, absolutely, I agree. It's crazy. And we need just to, dig to bring into this. it home really yeah. quickly. Okay. Though. Bring it home. I mean, it's <laughs> a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> She's gonna you know, smack you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're, you're, 
clock's going to get punched when we're done I, here, Michael. I got to no. tell you, that was a pretty uh, stiff look there. Um, All right, bring it home. We do, when we do financial analyses for our clients, the core factor is, because I can just see clients reaching out. Not that anyone listens to this, but I can see them reaching out, if they were to, being like, hey, we never measured our space, WTF. Um, without measuring the space, we do still account for, but it's still, I mean, truthfully, like, maybe I should get a laser measure. I don't know. <laughs> um, we account for that core factor in the financial analysis we do for lease spaces. But yes, I don't think people measure their space. No. And they pay per square foot. It's crazy. You go to the uh, grocery store and you buy turkey, you pay per pound. You can weigh it. You can weigh it. Maybe we need... And nobody does it. Nobody weighs. It's fascinating. So 40 years, 20 years, a couple of years, collectively, we all have the same opinion that it is a wild, wild universe. I mean, all I can say is I hope they still keep making ceiling grids two by two or two by four because Shh, don't tell anybody that's like cheating. <laughs> okay, hold on, no, 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 no. I got to no. If you ever see me looking like a crazy <laughs> lunatic, just like walking the perimeter of the space, that's what I'm doing. I'm counting your you, ceiling tiles and multiplying by two or four. <laughs> do you know what the dimensions? You can't of say a I never two mentioned. by four. Are? All right, a ceiling what? tile or a two by four? A two by four. She was talking about a ceiling tile. Those I are know. two by four. I'm, I'm, down I'm, the I'm, off the rails no, I'm saying oh the dimensions of a two by four. four are not two by four. Right. It's a quarter inches short. Try explaining that. Looks to like yours. a five foot nine male measured. You know, a five foot nine male is like, yeah, it's two I, by four. It's my point. <laughs> it's it's just, one and a quarter are, by three. We are a, <laughs> unfortunately, we do not have the tolerances to send a spaceship to Mars. All right, this is officially We're off in a the rails. Different. <laughs> All right, guys, it's been great. Completely. <laughs> Episode eight. Episode eight is awesome. Uh, knob, whatever this awful <laughs> bourbon is. What is it? Knob Creek. I like it. Knob for Creek. The You're in? Yes or no? Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Knob you? Creek is I a like very it. fine product. This just might not be one that you like the taste. Okay. So you're I in? Mean, I, I this uh, this uh, particular no, no, blend yes is not no. not is yeah, not my you know, it's it's yeah it's very yeah I I don't mind it. What the heck was that? What? Other than a non-answer. No, I Do would have. I'm want... going to have another one. Okay. <laughs> okay. Page is in. I'm in. I'm finding a new bourbon. So okay. thanks for watching. Thank you. Right. Episode nine. We'll try to do better next time. <laughs>